0: Welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist and guide to the mythic dimension, Catherine Savella. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Today I want to talk about one of the greatest mysteries in human experience, and that is the nature of the self. When we talk about ourselves, when we say me or I, when I refer to you, it's generally assumed that we're talking about a singular entity, that there is one self, one Catherine, one consciousness of Catherine, and Along those same lines, we frequently talk about wholeness and our quest for wholeness, our desire to be complete as if there was only one self. This quest for wholeness is an idea that's central to the psychology of C.G. Jung And while I greatly admire Jung and use a lot of Jungian ideas and approaches in this program, the way that James Hillman broke that fantasy apart has always made a lot of sense to me. James Hillman was the one who first introduced me to the idea that my experience of being a set of selves, of having one part who thought this and one part who thought that, of the reality of being infused by certain energies, of feeling like I was one person one day and another person another day, that something fundamental changed in me when I was triggered, or that my inner debates and conversations, which sometimes seem to take place between more than even two entities, that all of this was not only real but normal and the true nature of self. Around the time that I first started reading Hillman and exploring these ideas, I also encountered another uh, writer, Michael Ventura, who collaborated on a very interesting book with James Hillman called A Hundred Years of Psychotherapy and the World is Getting Worse, which I highly recommend. In a book that Ventura wrote called Shadow Dancing in the USA, he provides one of the best images, I think, (laughs) for our inner psyche, for our actual self. And this is in the context of an essay about marriage. And he's talking about his partner, his wife, and her son, his adopted son, the three of them. And he says, I can only be reasonably sure of several of these people, the several isolate Michaels, eight or 15 of them whom I pass from day to day, night to night dawn to almost no longer dawn, and who at any moment in this much too small apartment might encounter a Jan or a Brandon whom I've never seen before, whom I've conjectured about and can sometimes describe, but am hard-pressed to know. So in this apartment where some might see three people living a comparatively quiet life, I see a huge encampment on a fire-lit hillside a tribal encampment of selves that must always be unknowable, a mystery to any brief Michael, Jan, or Brandon who happens to be trying to figure it out at any particular moment. There is a great mystery here about how this collective that becomes what we call an individual comes together, how it arises out of the larger field of psyche or soul that contains us and our world and everything that we understand. As we grow up, many of us develop stories around how we acquired some of these selves, stories about things that happened to us at various points in our lives that created this tendency or that tendency that we recognize as being far more complete than habits and are, in fact, actual selves. Some of ourselves we know well, and as Michael Ventura observes, some we don't, and in fact some are hidden away even from us, and that's what I want to not so much talk with you about today, but explore through the lens of story. There are some hidden selves in all of us, and some of those hidden selves, well, It's hard to understand all of this with the mind, so I want to let the story speak about it. I want to use the stories we've been given. The story that I want to tell you is a fairy tale called The Robber Bridegroom, and my version is based on one that was collected by the Brothers Grimm. So I invite you now to relax and listen, just let go of what I've been talking about, and note the moments in the story that particularly grabbed your attention today. The Robber Bridegroom Once upon a time, there was a miller who had a beautiful daughter. And when she came of age to be married, he wanted to make sure that she was well provided for and decided that if a respectable suitor came along and asked for her hand in marriage, that he would give his daughter to him. And not long after this, a suitor did come along, a man who appeared to be very rich. And because the miller couldn't find any obvious fault with him, he promised his daughter to him. The young woman, however, did not like this man as much as a bride should like her bridegroom. She didn't trust him. And whenever she saw him or thought about him, she had a really creepy feeling. She had a sense of horror in her heart. One day, the man said to her, You're engaged to be married to me, but you have never once paid me a visit at my house. Well, I don't know where your house is, she said. And then... The bridegroom said, well, my house is out in the dark woods. And looking for an excuse, she said, well, I'm sure I wouldn't be able to find the way there. And the bridegroom said, look, next Saturday, I'm having a party. I've already invited guests, and you must come out and visit me. I will make a trail of ashes so that you can find your way through the woods. When Sunday came, and it was time for the girl to start out on her way she became very frightened and she wasn't really sure why but in order to mark the path she filled both of her pockets full of peas and lentils at the entrance of the forest there was a trail of ashes that the man had left as he had promised and she followed this trail but at every step She threw a couple of handfuls of peas to the ground, to the right and the left. She walked almost the whole day until she came to the middle of the woods, where it was the darkest. And there stood a solitary house. She did not like it. She didn't like the dark woods. She didn't like the house. It was too quiet. It felt sinister, and she went inside, and no one was there. It was totally quiet, and suddenly, a voice called out, turn back, turn back, you young bride, you are in a murderer's house, and the girl looked up, and she saw that the voice came from a bird that was in a cage that was hanging from the wall. And it cried out again, Turn back, turn back, turn back, you young bride. You are in a murderer's house. And then the young woman She went from one room to another. She walked through the whole house. And it seemed entirely empty. Until finally she came to the cellar. And she went down into the cellar. And there was an old woman sitting there. The old woman shook her head when she... "'saw her. "'Could you tell me?' said the young woman. "'If my bridegroom lives here?' "'Oh, you poor child,' replied the old woman. "'Where did you come from? "'You are in a murderer's den. "'You think that you are a bride soon to be married, "'but death is what he's got planned for you. "'Look, they made me put a large kettle of water on the fire.' When they've captured you, they will chop you to pieces, cook you, and eat you. For your bridegroom and his friends are cannibals. And if I don't save you, you're doomed. The old woman took the younger woman and led her behind a large barrel in a corner of the room where she wouldn't be seen. Get back down behind here, she said, and be quiet as a mouse. Don't make a sound and don't move. If they find you, it'll be all over. And tonight, when these robbers have fallen asleep, we'll escape. I have long waited for an opportunity to get out of here. Well, the young woman had barely settled back in there. They'd barely finished this conversation when the band of Came home and they were dragging another maiden with them. They were drunk and they paid no attention to all of her screaming and sobbing. These men gave her wine to drink three full glasses one glass of white, one glass of red, and one glass of yellow, which stopped her heart beating. And then they ripped off her clothes laid her on a table and chopped her body up into pieces and sprinkled salt on it. The young woman hiding behind the barrel just trembled and shook because now she knew what fate her bridegroom actually had planned for her. Well, one of the robbers noticed a gold ring on the murdered girl's little finger and when it didn't come off easily, he took an axe and chopped the finger off. But when he chopped it, it flew into the air and over the barrel and fell right into the young woman's lap. The robber, who wanted the ring, took up a light and started looking for it, but he couldn't find it. And his comrades called out to him finally, Hey, did you, did you look over behind that barrel in the corner there? And at that moment, the old woman cried out, Oh, oh, leave that for later. Come and eat. Come and eat. You can look again in the morning. It's not like the finger's going to run away from you. And all the robbers said, Yeah, the old woman is right. We're hungry. And so he gave up his search and came over, and they sat down to eat. The old woman poured a sleeping potion into their wine. So when they lay down in the cellar and fell asleep, they went, pooh deep into a snoring, sound sleep. When the young woman heard them snoring, she came out from behind the barrel, and she had to step over them all, all of the sleeping men laying in rows on the ground, and she was afraid that she might wake one of them up, but she got through that safely. And the old woman followed her, and the two of them went upstairs and opened the door, and hurried out of that house as fast as they could. When they got outside, they found that the wind had blown away that trail of ashes, but the peas and the lentils had sprouted and grown up, and the leaves were shining and showing the way in the moonlight. The two women walked all night. They got back to the mill the next morning, and the young woman told her father everything that had happened. When the wedding day came, the bridegroom appeared. The miller had invited all of his relatives and acquaintances, and as they sat at the table, each one was asked to tell something, to tell a joke or a story, to entertain a group, and the bride sat still and didn't say anything. Finally, the bridegroom turned to the bride and said, "'Come, sweetheart, don't you know anything? "'Tell us something, like the others have done.' "'Well,' she said, "'I will tell you about a dream. "'I was walking alone through the woods "'when I came to a house. "'And I went inside, and there was not a single soul, "'but on the wall there was a bird in a cage. "'And it cried out, "'Turn back, turn back, you young bride!' "'You are in a murderer's house.' "'And then it cried out the same thing again. "'Well, darling, it was only a dream. "'And then I went through all the rooms, and they were all empty. "'And there was something so eerie and creepy in there. "'And finally I went down into the cellar, "'and there sat a very old woman, shaking her head. "'I asked her, "'Does my bridegroom live in this house?' And she said, Alas, poor child, you have gotten into a murderer's den. Your bridegroom does live here, but he intends to chop you to pieces and kill you, and then he's going to cook you and eat you. Oh, darling, it was only a dream. And after that, the old woman hid me behind a large barrel, and I had scarcely gotten behind there when they came back. The robbers came home dragging a girl with them, and they gave her three kinds of wine to drink white and red and yellow, which caused her heart to stop beating. Darling, it was only a dream. And after that, they took off her fine clothes and chopped her beautiful body to pieces on a table and sprinkled salt on it. Darling, it was only a dream. Then one of the robbers saw that there was still a ring on her finger, and because it was hard to get off— He took an axe and chopped off the finger, and the finger flew through the air behind the large barrel, and it fell into my lap. And here is the finger with the ring, and she produced the finger and showed it to everyone who was there, and her bridegroom, who had gotten whiter and whiter and whiter and whiter during this story, was now white as chalk, and he jumped up and tried to escape But the guests held him fast, and he was turned over to the courts. Then the bridegroom and his whole band were executed for their shameful deeds. A disturbing story, right? And also a really important one, because those selves, those selves that comprise what we call me, they have many different reasons to be, many different motivations and roles to play, and some of them, especially the ones that tend to stay the most hidden, can be very destructive, even insane. Clarissa Pincola Estes calls these selves, or this self, the natural predator, a powerful, deceitful fugitive in the psyche. And in her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, she talks about this figure in the context of the story Bluebeard, another male figure with the gruesome habit of murdering his wives. And Estes goes on to suggest that the source of this self may be found in the unredeemed, that there's an aspect of self that's in a state of perpetual exile, and so therefore then feels the need to take down others, to extinguish the light of others, which can be the light of the self of which it is a part. It could also be the light of others outside. And there is a connection between our ability to fully imagine our full complement of selves and capacities, if you will, and deal with them and the overall tenor of this collective psyche, the collective psyche that contains all of our human possibilities and what is acted out literally on the plane of human experience. Now, Esty's theory about the unredeemed feels right to me. But I think we can strip the whole thing down to its essence and say that The complete range of behaviors must exist in this collective psyche. That it can be imagined is proof that it exists. That we tell these stories reflects an understanding of that psychic field of which we are all a part. Because we are in psyche, it's not something that we create. And it's very naive not to recognize this and very naive and dangerous to pretend that these destructive aspects do not exist. There are so many stories of this sort. It's really staggering when you start looking into it. And the vast majority of them, women, are the protagonists and the potential victims. And I... I think that there are several reasons for this, most of which have to do with the nature of our patriarchy. Men and women, both, all genders are damaged by the one-sidedness. All genders are brutalized, and yet women are the ones who are the most diligently trained to go along, to be nice to look the other way, to make excuses for the bad behavior of others and to ignore their intuition about the degree of threat they face. I think it's really interesting that at least some of the women who have taken on the task of standing up to and resisting Trump have claimed the name that he gave them is nasty women. Nasty women, that's exactly right, to risk being the nasty woman. But there's more to it than standing up against, because the story tells us that these capacities are found in our own being, there's a threat to our own psyche that resides in us and collaborates these outer forces. And we see this in a wide range of self-destructive tendencies. Taking the wrong kinds of risks, addiction, suicides, various forms of soul death that men and women inflict upon themselves. In addition to being willing to recognize the existence of these forces in ourselves when they start uh, showing signs, when they start knocking at our door. The story tells us that we have to develop the strength and the savvy to deal with them. In the story that I just told you, the young woman waits until it's the wedding day, and they're sitting in a group, and then she tells about her experience by calling it a dream I found another story, an English story, called The Oxford Student, where there's a young student who seduces the daughter of a tradesman, and he is going to kill her, and he makes an appointment to meet her one evening in a secluded field, and she gets there before he does and sees that he's digging a grave, and so she gets nervous and she leaves. But the next time that she sees him, She speaks directly about it, right to him. And he's completely taken by surprise, and of course furious and frightened that she knows what's going on and stabs her in the heart. So he's caught, okay, so he gets captured. But the young woman is dead. She needed to be a little bit craftier. In dealing with this predator. In the fairy tale that I told you, I really like the teamwork between the old woman and the young woman. And I also appreciate the existence of the bird. The bird in the cage on the wall seems to me to be a mirror image of the old woman who's trapped and also the young woman who is trapped, who doesn't realize until. She sees what's going on, how her inability to speak her truth is limiting, was going to limit fatally her ability to live. In another version of this story, a young woman goes to meet her sweetheart at the place where they normally meet, which is out in a deserted field where there's a tree, and she sees a hole, a grave dug under the tree, and gets frightened and gets up in the tree, and anyway, she manages to save herself and run home and tell her family, and they have a party, and the the sweetheart is outed in a way that's very similar to the story that I told you. The young woman survives because she pays attention to the warning signs. She pays attention to the bad feeling that she gets. There's also an Indian version of this story that I found where there's a robber and there is a woman who is a courtesan who has a lot of money of her own and she sees this uh, robber bandit and just inexplicably falls in love with them, falls in love with them at first sight and He's going to be executed for his crimes, and she pays a huge price to the king to have him freed and to take him on as her husband. And so they both presumably are about to set out on a life of respectability, but after they've been together for a while, the robber starts thinking, I'm not going to be able to do this. I mean, I can't live like this, this life of domesticity and with this one woman, and here I'm married to this incredibly rich woman. So I think what I'll do is I will kill her and take all of her jewelry and ornaments and head for the hills. So he goes to her and he says, I made a deal with a tree deity, a tree god, up on a mountaintop uh, when I was captured by the king's men before you, my darling, came along and saved me. And I need to make an offering to that deity because it's very upset that I haven't kept up my end of the deal. She says, "Okay, let's great, let's go ahead and, and and do what you have to do." And he says, "I I need you to go with me. We need to both go, and we got to make a big show of it. We need to you need to put on all your jewelry, and we need to go and really you know make a ceremony out of it." So she agrees to do that, and they get to the foot of the mountain. And he says, okay, there's all these people around now because we're doing this big fancy thing, but the deity is not going to like that. It's not going to like the crowd. So it really needs to just be the two of us. Will you just go up there with me? And she agrees, and the two of them go up to the top of the mountain to this private spot where he claims that he needs to make this offering. And she's carrying all of the riches that they're going to give to this deity, he's got her all weighed down with all of that, and he's actually armed to the teeth. And when they get up to the top, he picks a spot over near a precipice and says, okay, now I'm going to tell you the truth, honey. I haven't come up here to make any kind of offering. I've come up here to kill you. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to take all your stuff. I want you to take off all of your jewelry and bundle that all up in your cape and lay it down for me because... This is how it's going to go down. And she's actually in love with him and says, why why, why do you want to kill me? And he says, well, gee, uh, uh, duh, for your money. Well, but I've done all of these things for you. I mean, I saved your life, basically, and I truly love you. And I, anyway, he's a bad guy. He doesn't care about anything. And so she does as he tells her to do. She takes off all of her jewelry and she wraps it up in her cape. But then she says, because I really do love you, would you please just embrace me one more time before you kill me? And the man can't see any harm in this. So he says, okay, come and embrace me. And she comes and she walks around him and kisses him and says, okay, my husband, now I'm going to show you some obeisance, and in the Indian tradition, then she bows down and moves around to do this on all four sides. And when she gets behind him, she pushes him with all of her strength. Suddenly she's as strong as an elephant, and she pushes him over the precipice. When she descended down the mountain and came among her servants, and they asked her where her husband was, She said, don't ask me, and got into her chariot and went back to the city. Three variations on this theme here. In one, the young woman ignores all of her own inner warnings, even the warning of the bird, but then is saved in partnership with the old woman and comes up with a successful ruse. In another version, the young woman goes straight for the man who would murder her and has killed herself. And in this final version, the woman partners up with a bad guy, inexplicably, but is able to save herself because she is crafty enough to outwit him. However we do it, it begins with recognizing that hidden self, what Estes calls the natural predator, that self who is for some reason or another motivated to steal the life, that is the light, from others. People are doing truly insane things these days. The level of violence is incredible. I'd like to say unimaginable, but that's part of the problem. If we let it remain unimaginable, then we are not doing the psychic work that we need to do in addition to the cultural debates and the laws and the changes in our social behavior that may bring an end to that type of violence. Who might be lurking on the outskirts of your tribal encampment of selves? The origin of that question is a mystery, and yet stories like The Robber Bridegroom remind us to be alert, curious, and questioning. And that's it for me, Catherine Savella, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.